Well, good morning. My name is Josh, one of the pastors here. And uh, I don't know about you. Um, I assume you're probably not like me, but I, uh, it's a little embarrassing. I get really uh, existential and a little bit emo around the, uh, the new year. Uh, so maybe instead of Happy New Year, I'll say Existential New Year. Uh, I don't know if it's just like because my birthday was this past week, so I like click over another year of like my life, and the calendar clicks over. I just you know think about you know just all the metaphysical realities or whatever. And um, for whatever reason, this year I've been thinking about funerals. So uh, yeah, Happy New Year! You're, you're going to die someday. <laughs> uh, but let me tell you a tale of two funerals. Uh, on the day that I turned 25. Uh, my grandmother died after a year-long battle with uh, cancer. She died in my parents' living room, uh, you know, in one of those, like, hospital beds, while my, my sister, her granddaughter, uh, she had been kind of, like, non-responsive for a few days or a week. Uh, we were just kind of, like, waiting, you know, for her to go. And uh, my sister uh, was reading uh, Ephesians chapter 1 to her. Uh, and just, like... To this day, just melts my heart thinking about her going to be with Jesus while her granddaughter read, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And, uh, you know, of course she was not perfect, but I, I would say she was a saint in a very real sense of the word. Uh, she didn't have a, a. She had some suffering in her life. She and her three kids uh, had been abandoned uh, by her husband. He cheated on her and left, and so she dealt with you know the struggle of being a single mom, uh, a divorced woman in a time you know that, where that had even you know even more shame than it does today. Uh, yet she did what she could. That was kind of like her her tagline. Uh, as a kid, I, I saw her faithful involvement and. Church and Bible studies and serving in all kinds of different capacities, mentor programs, supporting missionaries, and I can still picture her her Bible. She had this little like Bible reading table in her kitchen with her big old pink study Bible uh, that was always open on it. And uh, uh, yeah, I think a lot of my life, my story is is part of her spiritual legacy. And she's also super fun. Some of my best memories are slumber parties at Grandma Ray's house and. Uh, the funeral for this four foot eleven small town nurse and single mother was an off the charts celebration of god 's work uh, there 's this massive church auditorium that was packed out like I, I think if I remember right like they couldn 't do it in her church because it was too small, so they had to like go to this bigger church down the road. Uh, hymns were belted out by the hundreds of people who came out to celebrate her life and you know, afterwards, as I stood in line uh, with like the family members at the front, and people kind of like cycled through, uh, countless strangers shook my hand and hugged me because of my grandmother's faithful life, loving service, and small ways over, dec- over decades, she had shown them the love of God. C- contrast that with the funeral of my grandfather. Uh, her ex-husband, the guy who cheated on her and left my mom and her siblings, he remarried and he kind of wandered around out west for the rest of his life. Uh, I mean, it was, it, he asked me to do his funeral, uh, which was an honor. Uh, so when he passed, you know, I drove down to Ohio and met my mom and her siblings, his second wife at the funeral home, and the, you know, talk about the the funeral service. My, my father or my grandfather, he deeply hurt his kids. Like 
even before he had abandoned them, he was critical and, you know, mean and explosive. And so there I was sitting, you know, in those like floral print chairs that funeral homes have uh, with my mom and aunt and uncle and my step-grandma, you know, trying to talk about how this funeral was going to go. And uh, if you ever have to preach a funeral, this is my working paradigm, three H's of preaching a funeral, honesty, honor, and hope. Uh, and so I started with honor. You know, what, what good memories do you have of Grandpa? Guys, the silence that followed that question will probably haunt me the rest of my life. To have your children and your wife sit silently as they rack their brains for something positive to say was so devastatingly sad to me. So, you know, maybe more helpful questions. I, I, you know, what did you learn from him? What, what was he really good at? When did you feel most loved by him? It was, it was tough. All we could come up with was the fact that he stayed faithful to his second wife for 30-some years and that he had built up a dairy herd from one cow named Bessie. It was, it was a hard funeral, funeral to preach. Like, no one wanted to be there. It was only like one or two other people besides family. And afterwards, we went and ate pizza with a palpable sense of relief. So what, what kind of funeral do you want to have? As we enter the new year, or consider how we want to live our lives in 2022, uh, maybe consider goals or habits, I want to invite you to consider the, the new year through, through that question, or, or a second question, what kind of person are you becoming? Today we're going to talk about spiritual formation. These questions, I think, help us get to some of the heart of what spiritual formation is all about. As Pastor Mike said, uh, he, he was gracious to give me this, this opportunity to preach as kind of like a teaser for this class we're launching on January 12th, not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, uh, where we're going to dive into spiritual formation and, and how, how we change to become like Jesus. Um, you can sign up on the link uh, on Slack or the website, uh, I think, or whatever. Uh, so this will be a teaser, and it's a topical sermon, like there's thousands of words on the floor of my office this week that I cut out because there's so many different things I could talk about. Um, but for the plan, the plan this morning, not literally, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, the plan for this morning is to do three things. I want to define spiritual formation, and then I want to look at uh, the, what uh, I'm calling the secret of the easy yoke uh, of Jesus as it pertains to spiritual formation, and then do an overview of a theory of transformation. It's a clear plan, like a how. If there's a what of spiritual formation, then there's a how of spiritual formation. So let's unpack our terms a little bit. A broad definition of spiritual formation is the process by which the human spirit or will is given a definite form or character. So this is just like generic spiritual formation. And I, I pause here for a moment to point out that spiritual formation is not an option. Like we're all... Our spirits, our, our beings are all taking on a definite form or character. It's just a question of what kind. Like, it's not just like something you sign Spiritual formation isn't something you sign up for at church. It's not even a specifically Christian thing um, or even religious thing. Like, even secular people, atheists, whatever, are becoming a kind of person. Their, their spirits are taking on a particular character. We can't not be formed. Like, there's no such thing as a rational, autonomous individual. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. 
and taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Either a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures, with itself, or else one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it's joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us, at each moment, is progressing to one state or the other. To say it another way, choices become habits, habits become character, and character becomes your destiny. So, Christian spiritual formation, then, is distinct. It's a specific type of spiritual formation. It's the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. The text that I think most clearly captures this, oh my goodness, there are so many, it's so hard to pick, uh, is 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18, which says, Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So this part, this passage captures the transformation. Like we are being transformed, it's happening to us, and it's a process from one degree of glory to the next. And it flows from freedom. And that's one of the main reasons why I picked this particular passage, because I think we need to do a little work on the word freedom. Uh, in our day and age, it can often mean the ability to just do whatever we want. Like, no constraints, no one telling me what to do. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, whenever I feel like it. Um, or the freedom to not have to do anything I don't want to do. Like, if, if I don't feel it, you know, then it's not authentic, and I don't have to do it or whatever. But in Scripture, that's actually what we would call slavery. In Scripture, freedom most often means the ability to choose what is good. And so just doing whatever you want is like the default isn't freedom. When, it's, when Scripture uses the language of slavery and freedom, it's often talking about us being a slave to sin, where before God saves us and gives us a new heart, we can't do anything else. We have no freedom to choose anything else other than sin. We're dead in our trespasses, slave to sin, darkened in our understanding. And one of the beautiful gifts of the gospel, the work of God that he does in our lives by grace through Christ, is a new heart. A renewed mind where in our inner being we now have different desires and we can choose something other than sin. We can choose something other than being against God. We have other categories. This is important theological context for us this morning in our discussion of spiritual formation. One, it is happening to us all the time, whether we are aware of it or not. And two, spiritual formation, when we talk about it, we're describing the process of a person who has been saved by grace, through faith, regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit, given a new heart that can now desire and choose God. Now the definition, uh, can you put that slide back up there, has four parts, and let me just give you a word on each. So first, it's a process. The, The time horizon of this discussion of spiritual formation is decades, like, this is not, like, you're not going to be done after the eight-week class that, that starts next week. Uh, we, it, 
that, that's what I saw in my grandma, this like faithful obedience, just day after day following Jesus. And it's a process. This is a theological term, uh, progressive sanctification. One degree of glory to the next. It's not a, a, a sanctification lightning bolt that you know, just zaps you and then you no longer struggle. Uh, it's a process of being formed. This is something, it's a passive verb, something that God does to us, in us, something that we receive. Now, we have a part to play, which we'll talk about later or whatever, but the definition is this is something that God does in us. And then he's forming us into the image of Christ. It is unbelievably profound, the incarnation that God drew near and dwelt in flesh with us to show us the human life, to proclaim the kingdom and show us human life. So it's very specific. It's not abstract, ethereal. We look at Jesus. We're becoming like a person. It's not just some generic thoughts about love and peace or whatever, though that's a big part of it. So anytime we see a break in our lives where the system of our lives is forming us into an image of something else, like you know, Twitter or something like that, then we need like a hard pause. And then it's for the sake of others. Jesus came as one who serves to give his life away for others. So as we become like him, it would naturally, it would naturally follow that we get to the place where we more and more joyfully give ourselves away. So spiritual formation is not just like you in a closet by yourself, though that's part of it, maybe some of, some of the time. Uh, but it's for other people. It doesn't end with us. It's not just like a, a, a navel-gazing, all-about-us, self-actualization thing. It's We're growing into who God made us to be for the sake of others, to love others. So the choice then, before all of us who have been made new in Christ, is whether or not we will use our freedom, this God-given sense of agency, the God-given ability to choose, to set up our lives so that our character is formed into what we want. Now let's look at our key text for the morning. Matthew 11. See Jesus' invitation here. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Such a beautiful passage that I hope as we talk about spiritual formation, this invitation is kind of the framework. This is the, the, the key way we think about it. We're talking about rest for our souls, resting our souls in the God who made them and is the only one who can satisfy them. Like one of the things that breaks my heart as I've explored and talked about spiritual formation with other people is, is that uh, it, it, some people can hear it as a crushing burden. You start talking about spiritual formation or a vision of like, hey, what might you look like? What, what do you want to look like in 20 or 30 years? Uh, I had a friend say to me once, I'm just trying not to lose my job. I can't talk about all this spiritual formation stuff or whatever. It's, it's heartbreaking to me. Like the, is, is that the life that Jesus died for us to experience? And so please hear me. Like this, this, the, the tender language of Jesus in this passage is why I get so excited about this stuff because it's through participating in the process of being formed that we get rest, we get joy. Just personally, this is what I want. Like, I, I want this. I want this rest for my weary soul. And I'm, I'm a pastor giving my life because I desire our church to experience that too. Jesus is describing his way of life. He says, it's restful. Stay with me. Now, a yoke is a farming tool that would have been used to hook two oxen together uh, and have them pull a plow. 
you know, something used for work. I think I have a picture of this. Uh, it seems counterintuitive. Why would Jesus give a working implement to people who labor and are heavy laden and, and weary? Why wouldn't he say, you know, take up my pillow and take a nap or go, you know, go hang my hammock by the river and relax? That's for the college kids. None of them are here, but college kids love hammocks. No, he said, take my yoke, take my working implement upon you and learn from me and it will result in rest for your souls. The common practice then was to take a smaller, younger, weaker ox, yoke it to an older, stronger ox and the young ox would be trained and, you know, like, ox stuff, like how to pull a plow and work a field. This is an image that we're getting here, is that Jesus is inviting us to yoke ourselves to him, with him, be with him. He's saying, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn how to live, learn how to work, learn how to do it my way. I'm strong, I'll do most of the heavy lifting, but work with me to grow. This is a gracious posture of our king. He's not just like, you know, chucking rules or ideas down from a lofty mountain. No, he's like, come, let me, let me show you how to do it. Walk with me, be with me. Unbelievable gift and invitation of the gospel. And some of the cultural context of Jesus' words here uh, would show us that a yoke was a common term in his day for the teaching and way of life of a rabbi or uh, you know, a teacher, even, even a philosopher or something like that. So Jesus... Was not the only one using this yoke language. Other people had yokes. Uh, other Pharisees, rabbis, other religions uh, would you know have teaching and practices that they would call people to take up. And Jesus is calling people weary of those other yokes to take up His yoke and work His way. And here it is, friends: the secret of the easy yoke. You cannot have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want the character of Jesus the kind of person of love, joy, courage, boldness, all that stuff. We must yoke ourselves to his teaching and his way of life. Or to put it in businessy terms, you know, they say in the business world, your system is perfectly designed to produce the results that you're getting. The same is true for our lives, for whatever yoke we're currently under. The result of your life right now are flowing out of the system of your life. And so if we want different results, we can consider a different system or a different yoke. Now, the most obvious way to display this is to talk about Tom Brady. Like two, two of my top five favorite sermon analogies involve Tom Brady. I love talking about him in sermon analogies. I don't particularly like him, you know what I'm saying? But like, he gives some good, good sermon analogies. Uh, I think they're playing the Jets today. And I have a, a side-by-side picture uh, for this analogy, I think. But imagine he, uh, he couldn't play today, and they call me, coach of the Buccaneers calls me and said, hey, come play quarterback. And so I go, deep in like cozy dad life, in my sweatpants and dorky glasses, you know, working out maybe once or twice a week, haven't played organized football since third grade, and I change out of my sweatpants and put on pads and trot out to the field at game time to take a snap and try to be like Tom Brady, and do what Tom Brady would do in the game, what's going to happen? I'm going to die. I'm like not going to survive. It would be a disaster. I can't have the life of Tom Brady without the lifestyle of Tom Brady. If you know anything about him, he trains and practices and studies football like a maniac. His whole life is orientated around winning football games. 
He's got a personal chef. I actually researched this. He's got a personal chef that makes all his meals super specific and healthy. No coffee, no alcohol, no pop, no sugar, no, no bread, no nightshades. Apparently, tomatoes don't help you win football games. I don't know. Uh, he's in bed every night at 9. His workouts are, you know, perfectly crafted by all these, like, you know, sports scientists to maintain strength and maximize flexibility, range of motion. He spends hours and hours studying film and plays and fine-tuning his form and everything. I can't be like Tom Brady just trying to do what Tom Brady does in the big game. But I think a lot of us, myself included, sometimes try to follow Jesus in the same way. Dallas Willard says it like this. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully, while living the rest of our lives as everyone else around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail to make the way of Christ difficult and left untried. In truth, it is not the way of Christ any more than striving to act in a certain manner in the heat of the game is the way of a champion athlete. We can't have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. And so the question is, will we use the freedom that we have in the regenerating work of the gospel, the freedom from slavery and sin, the freedom to choose to follow Jesus, to to set up our lives to be like him, with half as much intentionality as Tom Brady sets up his life to win football games? There's a key concept when it comes to spiritual formation. We talk about choosing or doing things. It's that grace is opposed to earning and not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning God's favor, right standing with him. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, to make him love us more, uh, to reconcile ourselves back to him. But grace is not opposed to taking up our cross and following Jesus, to obedience. It's not like you know, we're legalists as soon as we start exerting effort and energy to pursue the thing we want. Was the guy who sold everything with joy and bought the field a legalist? No, he was going after the treasure. He was going after what he wanted. And guys, I'm a huge grace guy. I was trained in a seminary in a church culture that was all grace all the time. And can I just testify to a minute that nothing has made grace more sweet, more precious to me than exerting effort to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus, to join God in this process of being formed. No one swaggers out of a day of silence and solitude feeling great about themselves. Like when you're still before God, all the crazy, the guilt, the shame that we keep repressed with busyness and distraction, it it bubbles up. And then what is our only hope in that space when everything's like stripped away? The cross becomes my desperate hope. The degree to which I can sit so deeply aware of my sin and just try to like wrap my head around the fact that in that place, in Christ, God is looking on me with love, that I'm his son and he's pleased with me. The cry of my heart this morning is that we would hear this invitation to follow Jesus, to take up his yoke or take up the cross as good news particularly if you've been a part of churches for a long time, followed Jesus for a long time, and you just feel discouraged and stuck by besetting sin in your life. You don't have to stay there, feeling bad about yourself, hoping, hoping some you know, sanctification lightning bolt strikes you and makes it all go away. We can act, exert effort, and what I think we'll see happen is the Holy Spirit 
we'll bless our little efforts. This is like the, the boy with the fish and the loaves feeding thousands of people. He just show up and offer to God what we have and see what he will do with it. So that brings us to our final question, our final thing. How do we do this? If this is what, if it's, you know, becoming, being a process of becoming formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others, that it's an easy yoke, it's taking on the lifestyle of Jesus, how do we do that? Well, one thing we're going to explore is, is, a, is a working theory of transformation. Uh, we'll explore this in our class coming up. And it's meant to kind of map out all the different components like involved in this process of transformation. Uh, we could spend an entire sermon series unpacking this. So if it feels overwhelming, sorry about that. This is an overview. It's meant to be a teaser. Sign up for the class. <laughs> and again, also remember that the time horizon for this is decades. Like we could literally work this theory together for the rest of our lives. Like there's, there's no rush. You don't have to figure it out in eight weeks or even, you know, whatever, a year, even in 2022. Like settle in. So here's the theory in words. God makes us like Jesus through the Holy Spirit empowering teaching, practices, and community in the context of the work, joy, and suffering of our lives. Like I said, we could spend three months in this, unpacking all that from Scripture. God makes us like Jesus through the Holy Spirit empowering teaching, practices, and community in the context of the work, joy, and suffering of our lives. So here it is in a graphic We'll just talk through this a little bit as we close our time. First thing I want to point out is the role of the Trinity making its appearance there. So it's God who's decreed, predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son, his son Jesus, who's accomplished salvation, brought us to God through his life, death, and resurrection. And then we have the Holy Spirit as the seal, as the helper, as the teacher, as this source of power, of God's empowering presence that dwells in our bodies right now. So now looking at the map here, can you see it? The circle is very small, very faint. We'll work on that. Um, So the work, joy, and suffering is outside the circle, and then we have teaching practices and community empowered by the Holy Spirit inside. And I think a helpful analogy to understand this is that teaching practices in community are like, uh, if, if we're talking about a car, teaching practices in community, they're like the pedals in the steering wheel. They're the part that we actually directly engage with, if that makes sense. The Holy Spirit would be the engine, you know? Like, it doesn't matter how good your steering wheel and pedals are, the Holy Spirit's not there, like, if your engine's not there, you're not going anywhere. So if he's not empowering the whole thing. And then the big circle the work, joy, and suffering, those are like the conditions of the road. Is it unpaved? Is it bumpy? Is it wet? Is it super snowy like today? We can't really control a lot of that. There, I mean, there's a little bit. You know, we can decide like where to drive and when to drive. Like maybe a lot of you on the, looking at you live streamers like looked at the snow and are like, I'm going to choose not to drive. And uh, that's a reasonable choice uh, and such a snowy day. But sometimes you just got to drive in a blizzard. And so we interact with this, the same things, whether it's a sunny, dry day or a snowy day. We got a steering wheel, and we got the pedals. Another thing I'll say about this is that, uh, and so the reason I say that part is because that, that's why we talk about the teaching practices in community. That's like the point of direct engagement. We have the, the Holy Spirit empowering it all. We have just like the, uh, you know, 
what, what, what's, the, what's the phrase, the, the divine curriculum of our lives, the work, joy, and suffering of our lives, that, the context and all that, but where we engage with those things is in the teaching practices and community. And on some level, teaching practices in community is just like the way humans change in any kind of context, like any, any kind of change you want to see happen. Uh, because it maps out all the parts of being a human. Like teaching is our minds and our thoughts. Practices is what we do with our bodies, our habits, and community are the, is the people we spend time with. So if you wanted to learn Arabic, you would need teaching, vocab, you got to learn the grammar and all that stuff. You'd have to practice a lot, conjugating verbs and saying the words, and, and you'd have to have other Arabic speakers teaching you and conversation partners and stuff like that. Same for learning the cello. Or if you look at... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous has this like super long track record of changing people. Like they have teaching, there's a big book, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend it. It's fascinating. They have 12 steps or practices uh, that, you, that you do. And then there's a community of people that a lot of people see more than once a week. You know, like there's one, one dude I, who just kind of got to the rock bottom and was going like twice a day or something like that, who are with you, who receive you, and you have a sponsor that like guides you and all that stuff. So on some level, it's just kind of like fabric of the universe. Like, I, like how do humans like change anything? Well, what I've found in my time in ministry is that typically a church or a church network will be about just one or two of the elements on the map here. And, and, and neglect the others. Not intentionally, not because they're like, we're anti-community or we're anti-the Holy Spirit or whatever, but just, you know, nat- naturally cultures like just, just in- drift towards certain things. So you might have churches that, that minimize theology and teaching. They're just about like organic community. Or I, hopefully this isn't too, but I'm not, whatever, I'm not going to qualify. I saw a church website and their mission was building theologies together. Like, so we're just going to make up theologies together and be, drink tea. I don't know. That, like, it makes me a little sick to my stomach. And scary. Because if we're loving people without truth, what, what, what are we doing? Like, in worst case scenario, we, we, we just love and accept everyone without any truth. We, we can end up enabling their dis- destruction. Like, cheering them on as they, like, drive off a cliff. But to get a little maybe closer to home, you know, there's lots of churches and denominations that are just like all about teaching the Bible. And they, you know, they might neglect some of our like, you know, Monday through Saturday practices or deep relationships where we're known and we confess sin and we speak truth to each other. You, you know, it's just from like, that kind of like brain on a stick. Like if we know right, we'll do right and be right. But of course, you know, what the Bible itself says, what? Knowledge puffs up. Some of the most unpleasant people I've ever met like, have most of the New Testament memorized and can like, wax eloquent about all the intricacies of theology. Jesus said, you search the scriptures in vain, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Like Jesus himself is saying, and this is, this should, this is scary, and by no means should we not read the Bible or whatever, but there's a way to come to scripture as a power grab, as a proof of, like, to miss Jesus and not become like him. We have to have all these components working together in combination. You need them all. And I think having the, the diagram, the map, uh, helps you be aware of kind of where you're naturally drawn. Like based on our personalities and backgrounds, we're just going to drift to different parts uh, of that. You know, we got lots of like emo hipsters just drifting into suffering. We're just going to chill here and suffer together. And then, you know, we got our brain people, our relational people. And that's okay. We all have our natural, natural bents. 
But when we keep it all on the map, we can say, like, okay, I love teaching. I'm going to be reading lots of books, but I know I need to, like, choose to embrace some type of community. And also point out that they're all connected. Teaching and truth, that comes to us how? In practices, like reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, or, hey, like what you're doing right now. This is a practice. You guys are already doing the theory of transformation. Coming to a Sunday gathering where we have teaching. And then this is also part of community where we're singing songs. It was so sweet to sit up here and just hear the, the voices of the saints worshiping God, washing over me. That's formative. It forms our souls. And we commit to community like committing to an LTG or inviting church family over for dinner, serving someone going through a hard time. So for our class, the, the practices or spiritual disciplines are going to be kind of the main thing because they kind of incorporate the teaching and the community. Um, that's what we're going to look at. Uh, Eugene Peterson calls them unforced rhythms of grace. Uh, these are their habits or discipline that flow from Scripture, specifically the life of Jesus, helps us live out that teaching. And I, I want to just like take a hot moment to connect this idea of teaching and practice, because I think it's so powerful and freeing. So for example, the Sabbath is a spiritual practice. Jesus practiced the Sabbath pretty much his whole life on the earth, and it's a, it's a time, 24 hours, where we stop, we rest, we delight, and we worship. So if that's the practice, consider the teaching that God is sovereign, in control, and loves us like children. We need to know that. We need to know that teaching, articulate it from Scripture, all that stuff. But I don't think we can say we really believe in the sovereignty of God until it impacts how we live. We believe it with our bodies. And so Sabbath is a way uh, where we can let the sovereignty of God impact our lives. 24 hours to let God be God. To practice the sovereignty of God by letting him take care of everything. You see what I'm saying? Like the, the point is not to practice, the point is like to get these objective realities of who God is and what he's done into our bodies, into our daily life. You can do this for lots of practices. All of them stem and base and flow out of getting more of God, more, more union with God, experiencing him more. Lastly, most importantly, the, the Holy Spirit. Again, I just want to say it again. Sorry for being repetitive. Actually, I'm not sorry. just want to be super clear. There's no transformation into Christ-likeness apart from the Holy Spirit. Teaching practices in community are, are things that we are able to do in, within our like, sphere of power, choice, to make ourselves available. The, the classic example is like a sailboat. Like, what can we do to make the wind blow? Nothing. But we can get our boat in the water, get the sails up, and be ready for when the wind shows up and does what only the wind can do. And I'll also say, teaching practices in community are especially important in times of suffering. Both like having them when times are good, you know, when's the best time to build a house? Like when it's not on fire, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you, you want to have some stuff in place, and then when suffering hits, they can be a stabilizing, grounding thing that just we, we, that keep us grounded in the truth of who God is. This past month has been pretty miserable for Camille and I, and so we've just been clinging to God through teaching practices in community. You know, James 1 says God uses suffering to make us complete, lacking nothing. And so dialing, diving into that teaching through practices has been so sweet. Like, what are practices and ways of interacting with community that would reinforce 
that truth and create space for God to, to deepen us, make that more real to us. Like, you know, we spent evenings on the couch, like reading Psalms and praying, and my LTG dudes have been so encouraging as I confess my anxiety and struggle to trust God. It's like a gift. It's stabilizing to just have kind of like a plan to like root yourself in the love of God so that like when it feels like everything's blowing up, you just do the next thing. Like you, the decision was made in the past and you just do it. Like I'm just going to show up to these dudes even though I can't really not cry right now. This is how we experience the easy yoke of Jesus. Let God make us the kind of person that, that can then show the world the beauty of who Jesus is. Again, there's so much we could talk about here. Sign up for the class if you want uh, more. But his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Like what if being a faithful Jesus follower meant you got more naps on the Sabbath or whatever? You, you, you were free from the sense of like urgency to, or, or performance to where you could ask for help and get breaks from your kids. You got more walks in nature, doing things that are fun to you. Closer friendships, less hurry and busyness. And ultimately, the deeper experience of the ferocious love that God has for you in Christ, subjectively already. And then how exciting would it be to have vivid experiences of the Holy Spirit's power flowing through you in love to other people as you join God on his mission to renew all things. This is the invitation to us today. Let me pray.